Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So we're about the middle of this structured study of uh, jhana meditation. And this sutta, the Adita Pariyasana Sutta, to me, I think, not I think, I know it's one of the most significant suttas the Buddha ever taught as a supplemental sutta. In other words, there are some primary or foundational suttas such as uh, the Paticca Samuppada Sutta or the, the, the teaching on Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, uh, Satipatthana Sutta, the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. Those are all foundational, what the, what the Buddha built his Dhamma on. This is, can be seen as a, um, a secondary sutta, but one of the most important because it points the direction that we all must travel. And, it, and it's a direction that the Buddha had to travel in order to develop his understanding. So the Buddha grew up in a time that was very similar to ours. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of violence. There was a lot of uh, all the things that human beings don't like. And a lot of the things that human beings have been grasping after and thinking they could find uh, contentment and safety in. And so the Buddha left his palace grounds where he was, he was really uh, a cloistered environment for the first 35 years of his life. Uh, 29 years of his life, I'm sorry. And when he left the palace grounds for the first time in his life, now remember, he was unsatisfied leaving that life of incredible luxury and power. But he didn't understand where the unease was coming from. Why was he disappointed? And so he left that the palace grounds seeking that understanding. And what he found shocked him to his core. And it's what set him on his search, his noble search. The Aryapanasutta is the Buddha's noble search for a noble path. And we have to understand what that path was, what he intended. He wanted to understand the nature of, of human beings suffering that he recognized was rooted in what became known as the three defilements. That human beings were distracted and discontent because of their own greed, their own aversion to things that were occurring in life, such as death. And I'll, I'll touch on that just in a moment. And, he, and what he could not understand is why would human beings, this grand population that he was able to observe now at the age of 29, why were they all acting in the same way, in the same, what we, I would call today, an insane way? Why were they all working towards grasping after things that were only leading to their discontent and spending a great portion of their time and energy avoiding things that were unavoidable, such as sickness, aging, and death, and disappointment? And so he went out on his noble search trying to find answers. And of course, he, like all of us, he went first to the loudest voices, meaning in our, in our world, it might be the, the people with the most Facebook likes or whatever. And so he studied with these folks first, and they were all teaching some form of salvation, meaning a way to fix a broken self, a way to, to end uh, this physical experience for a non-physical blissful experience, and, and, uh, and if you will, an out-of-body permanent experience. This is very, very similar. In fact, in some ways, it's exactly what people are seeking for today. They're using spirituality, religion, and, and most of modern Buddhism 
to find a way to escape what it means to be a human being rather than understand what it means to have a human life. And so the Buddha started this search and he doesn't, he doesn't describe every one of his encounters, but what he does describe is recognizing that which leads to understanding that he want the understanding that he wanted. Like again, he didn't want to understand what it meant to be a magical, mystical being that could live for a million years and bilocate and all the rest of the what he found to be nonsense during his teaching, much like ours. He wanted to know what it what does it actually mean to be a human being? How can I understand this one thing? And so the, the Aditya Pariyasana Sutta teaches what he did, but you'll also recognize yourself in these, in, in, in searches that were not noble searches. And he also describes very clearly what a noble search is and what an ignoble search is, excuse me. It's a, it's a rather long sutta. I probably, it's probably going to be at least two or three parts. Uh, it's too long to go through in one class. Uh, okay, the, the Aditya Pariyasana Sutta, the Buddha's noble search for a noble path. On one occasion, the Buddha was in Savatthi at Jita's Grove, Anatha Pandika's monastery. That's where he spent almost every year of his life, almost, that's where he spent the summer rains in Anatha Pandika's monastery. He adjusted his robe and taking his alms bowl, he left for town for his daily meal. A large group, and also I'm starting a little bit later in the sutta. I'm not right at the beginning in case anybody's following. A large group of monks approached Ananda. It has been a long, long while since we heard a Dhamma talk from the great teacher. It would be for our long-term benefit to hear a Dhamma talk from the awakened one. Ananda replied, Venerable one, perhaps if you went to the hermitage of Ramaka, you will get to listen to a Dhamma talk from the Buddha. We will do as you say, Venerable Ananda. The Buddha returned from alms and asked Ananda to accompany him to the eastern park at the palace of Megara's mother for the day's abiding. Then, I just like that line because it points to the Buddha's life and how really relaxed it was. This was a day that the Buddha didn't have a formal teaching to give. So he went to a place that was even more secluded than Anathapandika's monastery where the whole Sangha was gathered and went to a quiet place for the day's abiding, meaning simply being with himself. Then, having spent the day in seclusion, the Buddha asked Ananda to accompany him to the eastern gatehouse to bathe. Having bathed, Ananda said to his teacher, The hermitage of Ramaka is nearby. It is pleasant and delightful. There are many there awaiting your teaching. It would be of benefit to them if out of sympathy, meaning out of concern for their own awakening, you were to go there. And that's a good line for how we should approach it. We have two Dhamma teachers and those of us practicing the Dhamma, developing the Dhamma. It is out of true sympathy for others that we develop the Dhamma. You've heard me say often that the most loving thing I can do for myself and for all other sentient beings is to take to the Dhamma and awaken. And it is in that way that I can then be an example for an awakened human being, how they live their lives. And so I present that in, in, in a way that is sympathetic to other people, meaning I, sympathy is not, are you poor dear, let me bow down and help you. Sympathy is a profound understanding, having sympathy for someone. You understand what they're going through. So it is out of this sympathy, out of understanding the nature of suffering that another human being is going through, that I can now address it, out of sympathy for others. 
The Buddha agreed and left for Ramaka's hermitage. As they approached, they heard a Dhamma discussion underway. The Buddha waited for the discussion to end. Hearing silence, he cleared his throat and knocked to announce his arrival. Upon entering, he sat on a prepared seat and addressed the Sangha. For what discussion were you all gathered here? He asked. Great teacher, we were discussing you, and then you arrived. to try to put some magical content and con- context on it. Good, it is fitting that you have gone forth from good families, from home to homelessness, and gather for Dhamma discussion, meaning they're putting in some effort. When you gather as a Sangha, and this is something we all, we've been doing here across the meditation from the beginning, and I think it's why we are so successful in transmitting the Dhamma. When you gather as a Sangha, you should always discuss the Dhamma or practice noble silence. That's the most profound teaching on noble silence. Noble silence is not some forced agreed upon silence where, okay, I'm going to go on a retreat and I'm not going to talk to another human being for two or three days or two or three weeks. That's nonsense. There's no value in that or very little value. Noble silence is informed by right speech. Right speech is knowing when we should be quiet, when we should practice noble silence. So noble silence is not an agreed upon forced silence. Noble silence is informed by right speech. That's a very important distinction. And it also relates to the right speech that we are developing within our own mind, the right story that we tell ourselves. The Buddha continues, Friends, there are two types of searching for understanding. There is ignoble searching and noble searching. Again, what the Buddha is saying, if you're you're looking outside of that noble search path, it's all ignoble searching as far as the Buddha is concerned, as far as developing what he's teaching. And he's, notice he doesn't say that ignoble searching is means you're stupid or foolish or an idiot or anything else. He's just saying it doesn't relate to his Dhamma. And what is ignoble searching? Ignoble searching occurs when a person, subject to birth, seeks happiness in what is also subject to birth. What a profound statement. We, if we start arguing against our own humanity, sickness, aging, and death, not getting what we want, getting what we don't want, that's an aspect of having a human life. It's an aspect of having birth. And if we're against that, if we have aversion to that, we have aversion against ourselves. And the ignoble searching would be to escape that human life. I'm going to read it again. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to birth, meaning subject to having a human life, Another way of saying that is, we're already here. I'm already present. Subject to birth seeks happiness in what is also subject to birth. So in my discontent, because of ignorance of Four Noble Truths, I'm searching within that same framework that brought that discontent to my mind. Is that clear to everyone? Okay. I'm gonna, I see Tom nodding his head, so I'm going to... And Jeff, I'll take that as yes for everyone. And Alex. I can't see Louise. Right, Louise, I, I want to ask you to come on screen, but if, I, if I'm confusing you, please say so. This is important. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to sickness seeks happiness in what is also subject to sickness. So I'm, I'm a sick person. How do I get out of it? You've lost your mind already. The, what the Buddha is teaching is sickness is a consequence of birth. As a, birth is a consequence of having a human life. The way to move through sickness gracefully is to accept it. It doesn't mean that I'm glad that I have a cold, or I'm glad that I have COVID, or I'm glad that I have diabetes, or whatever else it might be. It simply means, as a consequence of human life, this is why I have these things. 
I accept it. And again, it doesn't mean that I have diabetes, so let me eat candy every day in my life. It changes the way I'm thinking, but not in a, in a harsh, self-judging way. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to aging seeks happiness is what is also subject to aging. What does it mean? It means clinging to youth. When the only thing that I can do moment by moment is age. So as I find myself 66 and not 26 anymore, and I'm disappointed by that, or maybe even rage, raging about it, I've lost my mind. To some people, it would sound reasonable. Of course, you'd rather be 26 than 66. Not really. I don't want to be 26 anymore because it's a fabrication. If I insisted I'd be like I am when I was 26, I can't live what it's like to be 66. I'm denying who I am when I do that. And again, it doesn't mean that I'm glad that I'm this way or that way. It just means that I have radical acceptance. This is what the Buddha is teaching here. Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to death seeks happiness in what is also subject to death. If I'm seeking some way to maintain this human life permanently, I'm seeking happiness in something that is subject to death. How would I do that? Well, for one thing, I would do what every religion, great or failed, has always done. Provide a repository for me after this life. That's an ignoble search. And I, it, it began with, for me when I was born into a Roman Catholic family, but it, it continued as I, continue, as I developed my Buddhist studies and studied with most of the major aspects of Buddhism and found that they all resolved in a magical, speculative, mystical, non-physical plane. The Buddha speaks directly to that. Don't do it. It's an ignoble search. And again, the Buddha was only concerned about what does it mean to have a human life? And how can I make meaning out of that understanding? Ignoble searching occurs when a person subject to sorrow, re regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, to delusion, seeks happiness in what is also subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, and delusion. So what is it that's subject to those things? It's the five clinging aggregates. It's a human being's ongoing life when that life is rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. It's the only search that that person ignorant of Four Noble Truths could engage in because the search itself is rooted in ignorance. Now the Buddha asks the important question, what is subject to birth? Spouses and children are subject to birth. Why is he saying that? Immediately, right off the top, what, why is that so important? Because he noticed the anguish that people had when they lost their spouse or their child. And so we would all say, of course you would. It's reasonable. It's reasonable to have the feeling, but not insist that it be different. That's when we start taking something as common as losing a loved one. Because it happens to everyone. The, the first time it happened to me that I noticed it was I was 14. I lost my best friend. Again, why is the Buddha teaching that? So we don't lose our mind. So we don't start speculating. And I'll go back to when Ken Dodd died. It took me 12 years to actually re resolve that one death. Because immediately I blamed God, who I believed in at the time. I blamed myself. I won't go through the circumstances as to why I did. I didn't directly cause it. But I, 
the circumstances were such that I, a 14-year-old kid could blame themselves. I blamed his parents. I blamed our church. I blamed golf. Again, long story. But I never just accepted the fact that I lost my best friend. And at the time, I could have appreciated that if I had the mentality I had now. I wouldn't have lost my mind over it. So that's just one example. So the Buddha is not saying when a loved one dies, you should be aloof and just blow it off. When the Buddha heard that his dad was dying, he didn't just say, ah, you know, good, good for him. He got up off his cushion and walked 140 miles to be with his dad before he died. But he didn't lose his mind over it. He didn't take it personally. He didn't wonder why was it happening. Why is it happening now? He knew it was just a consequence of having a human life. He stayed present with it. I've heard people say, well, that's not a, tell me, well, that's not really a big difference, a change of mind. Of course it is. If you can be at peace with something like that, you can be at peace with everything. And that's not all. He doesn't stop there. Animals of all types are subject to birth. Gold and silver, meaning material wealth, are subject to birth, meaning, they, again, not a physical birth, again, coming to, into our existence, they arise and they pass away. Sometimes we got a full pocket and sometimes there's nothing there. It's temporary. But I can tell you, looking back over my life until maybe the last 15 years, that's about right. The, the more money I had in my pocket, the better I felt about myself. And I should say, the more money I had in the bank, because if it was just in my pocket, it wasn't enough to feel good about myself. And I think most people feel that way. They feel like they're, you know, they're or at least safe and secure. But looking back, I always realized that all my worry about money never put a penny in my pocket, but it distracted me from what was occurring. And I missed a lot of lessons along the way that might have been valuable. Gold and silver, meaning material wealth, are subject to birth. Think about, if I think about all the money that I made in my life, I wouldn't, the next thought would be, well, I don't have another thought, another worry. But then there's that other part of me that, wait a minute, I spent almost all that I ever made. It's like what most human beings do. And again, I'm not getting into, I don't want to get into economies. I'm not, I'm not talking, this isn't a lesson in economies. It's a lesson in how we treat our own wealth. Do I create an identity by how much gold and silver I have? How thick my wallet is? Or am I the same when I got two pennies to my name as opposed to two million dollars? Because if you're different, you're in trouble. It's reasonable to recognize that the ideal situation for a human being is to have more than less. But that's not reflective on me as a human being. It also doesn't mean that I should just withdraw from the world and expect the world to support me. The Buddha didn't do that. Just as this sutta says, and it's important that it's at the beginning, it starts with that. The Buddha, established now as one of the most famous people in northern India at that time, got up in the morning, meditated, put on his robe, and walked to get a bowl of food. He could have asked any one of his disciples to do it for him. In fact, most days people would ask to do that for him. And almost every day he would say, no, I do it. And not because he was trying to, to prove anything, it was just what he did. When these are seen as acquisitions, one becomes attached and in, infatuated with these acquisitions, all of those that the Buddha just said, birth, gold, material wealth, sickness, etc. Infatuated with these acquisitions. Seeking happiness with what is subject to birth 
is an ignoble search. So if I'm engaging in a, in a uh, practice that hopes to establish myself in a non-physical realm, post this physical death, as far as the Buddha is concerned, I've lost my mind and it's an ignoble search. Why? Because each and every moment of my life from now until I die will be focused on what's coming rather than what's here. And a human life can only be left led, lived, I'm sorry, in right here and right now. Wise restraint. Likewise, these are all subject to sickness, aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair, to greed, aversion, and, de- and delusion. All of those things. Living a life rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. Seeking happiness with what is subject to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair, to greed, aversion, to delusion, is ignoble searching. So it's always important for us to ask ourselves, what's the, what's the result of this path? I can't remember if we've done the Nagara Sutta, uh, but if not, it's coming up. Nagara Sutta, the Buddha, is describing his awakening process, but he also describes why the path he were following, he was following didn't lead him to that. And it was because the culmination was always in some non-physical realm. And he understood that that was an establishment in, in misery, in despair. It was an ignoble search. What he wanted to understand was, how can I live a successful, skillful human life? Because he also understood that's all that he has. That's all that we have, by the way. And it's the most important thing to resolve what it means to be a human being. The Buddha continues. And what is noble searching? Noble searching is while being subject to birth, means stuck in aging, sickness, and death. Noble searching is while being subject to birth, seeking to understand the suffering of having this human life. Seeking, excuse me. Let me read it again. <coughs> Noble searching is while being subject to birth, meaning being involved in the in the in the um, in the ignorant view. Noble searching is while being subject to birth, seeking to understand the suffering of birth. I'm sorry, I got to read it. Noble searching is while being subject to birth, seeking to understand the suffering of birth, not escape it. Not escape the things that birth brings, sickness, aging, death, discontent. Understanding it. That is the significant difference in what the Buddha taught and what everybody else taught during the Buddha's time. And I would say, I haven't found anybody else that today too. I've yet to come across anything that teaches me how to understand suffering, which is understanding what it means to be a human being. And that is what's so liberating about the Buddha's Dhamma. Understand the suffering of birth. Seeking the unborn. What does that mean? That doesn't mean everlasting life. It doesn't mean eternity. You have to understand birth and rebirth. Excuse me. In the context of the Buddhist Dhamma and in this particular sutta. Birth in this context is what am I giving birth to in this moment? Meaning, what is what am I holding in mind that describes and defines as the experience that I'm having? So the unborn state would be, in this moment, I am no longer giving birth to another moment rooted in ignorance. When the Buddha is talking about the unborn state, that's what he means. There's no, when he awakened, he said, there's nothing left within me to provoke another moment rooted in ignorance. That is the reference to the unborn. 
And by the way, we're going through a sixth class um, structured study on Tuesday and Thursday right now on karma, rebirth, and intentional becoming. And I would I would suggest that you try to catch up on it when you can. The first uh, two talks are posted already. So let me continue with this. Seeking the unborn and, un, and the unexcelled release of the yoke, the unbinding. This is noble searching. Noble searching is while being subject to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, to despair, to greed, to aversion, to delusion, seeking what is free of sickness, of aging, of death, free of sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, greed, aversion, and delusion. How do we free ourselves from all those things that are common human occurrences? By not taking any of them personally, because they're not. Me at 66, looking at a young 25-year-old and feeling uh, uh, distressed over it, is doing just the opposite of that, isn't it? Or any other aspect of that. Seeing someone with, with, with uh, two brand new cars rather than one and wanting to have two instead of one. It's the same thing. Seeing someone else as having a better Dhamma practice than me is the same thing. Any self-referential judgment of ourself is seeking sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair. This is noble searching. Noble searching is seeking the unexcelled release of the yoke. That's in reference to, to ignorance. Release of ignorance. The unbinding from ignorance. This is noble searching. Uh, just a little bit longer and I'm going to stop here. Friends, before my self-awakening, it's an important line. He did it himself. And which points to what we're doing. We're doing it ourselves too. We are self-awakening based on what another human being who did the same thing did, accomplished. Friends, before my self-awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva or bodhisattva, that's another important line that the Buddha repeats often, and it relates directly to modern Buddhism. The bodhisattva path is the predominant path in most of modern Buddhism. Every Mahayana Buddhist takes the bodhisattva vow, I did, and even some Theravadins take the bodhisattva vow. This is what the Buddha is saying, don't do it. It's a fool. It's a foolish move. Um, I did. I took the, my bodhisattva vow in a, in a rather long weekend ceremony. Uh, about two weeks later, I disavowed it when I finally understood what it means. What the Buddha is saying, and the definition of a bodhisattva is someone who has great compassion for other human beings. That's the Buddha's use of the term. What it has grown to be, modern Buddhism, the usual statement of the bodhisattva, is those that put off their awakening until all other sentient beings are awakened. It sounds like a great noble thing to do, isn't it? It completely contradicts exactly what the Buddha is teaching. For one thing, that all sentient beings can be saved. The Buddha never set out to do that. That all sentient beings should be saved. The Buddha never set out to do that. And to put off my awakening, that contradicts the first noble truth. It's the whole point of what I'm doing is to awaken to be a human being. So when the Buddha references the Bodhisattva or the Bodhisattva, he's referencing himself as a, a human being with great compassion, but lacking the understanding and wisdom to help other human beings. And the Buddha did not, he didn't set out on a, his teaching career until he awakened. That's an important thing. It doesn't mean that when he saw someone in need, he didn't reach down and help them. But he didn't start telling others how to live their lives. And he's never really told others how to live their lives. He told us how to practice the Dharma. But he never did any of that until he understood it himself. He was authentic in that way. 
He wasn't just a snake oil salesman like most of the teachers were. I'm using that in a very broad sense. Friends before my self-awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, being subject to birth, to sickness, to aging, to death, meaning, again, he's saying, I'm a bodhisattva now, and I was still subject to birth, to sickness, to aging, to death, to sorrow, regret, pain, distress, despair, to greed, to aversion, and delusion, I was seeking happiness in what is still subject to all of those things. Then the thought occurred to me, why do I, being subject myself to birth, sickness, aging, to death, sorrow, regret, etc., etc., seek what is likewise subject to those same things? That is the turning point in my Dhamma practice. When I read that one line, that went, that's how I understood my own confusion, and it gave me license to start changing my mind and letting go all the conditioned thinking I had in, in the, the modern Buddhist practices that I had developed. And it was at this point of hearing that one line that I decided to, at least for now, I'm only going to focus on what I found to be what the Buddha taught. And that changed everything. So I'm going to stop there. I'd ask you to consider this, what we've just read, maybe read it again, read the introduction again over the course of the next week and relate it to your own, not just your own Buddhist practice, but your entire life and what you've been doing to seek happiness, what you've done to actually establish happiness and if the happiness that you've established is permanent. These are all the questions that this sutta should bring up in our minds. And if you find that you've made some unskillful decisions, take a deep breath, unite your mind and your body, and resolve to be very gentle with yourself because you found a secret. And it ain't no secret. But that's today's talk. We'll continue from there uh, next week. So, let's go to Jeff. I want to hear what Jeff has to say. Hello, Jeff. Oh, maybe he stepped out. Louise, how are you? Hi. I'm good, thank you. Um, good. I feel energized, actually. I came on a bit like, oh, God, I need matchsticks in my eyes, and now I'm, like, now I'm feeling quite energized. So good. that's nice. Um, I've got two questions, and I think they're, they're probably interrelated. And excuse the language. Please. might be a bit naive, but... Um, the two questions that I'm sitting with is I am at the moment delivering a set of workshops on um, review and reflection, end of year re- re- review and reflection, and sort of talking about the importance of reflecting on the year past and doing, you know, sort of end of year and balancing the books in terms of like energy mm. and all those kind of things. And at this and I have always been quite a curious person in that way, um, very self-reflective, and curiosity kind of runs through my bones. Mm-hmm. Um, and recently with someone who I had a really kind of close relationship with, we had a discussion and, you know, I, I said to him, you know, we we, like we, we kind of had like a bit of a breakup and I said, why... Um, why have you asked no questions? Why have you asked no questions? There's no curiosity. There's no want to try and understand. Why is that? <laughs> like, why, why, ha- why hasn't there been any questions? And I'm wondering, is that skill or is that bypassing 
because that's the way I look at it. But if I'm not doing this reflection or review or asking the right questions or trying to understand, I'm sweeping something under the carpet or I'm bypassing or... Mm -hmm. And then I, I sit with the sort of the Buddhist idea and... Yeah, I just wonder where is is there a place for review and reflection in this? Yeah, let me let me answer this. That's such an important question, Louise. You, you it's a very uh, penetrating question. There's a, a line that the Teragatha, the preserved uh, words of some of nuns, um, and I'll give some teachings on that in the future. And there's a line in the Teragatha. I think it's four point seven. It says, "What is to be is what is here." And again, that's one of those most powerful lines when you understand it. What is to be is what is here. All the things that I've carried with me and projected in my life is what's occurring right here and right now. So the, the, this moment in my life, the way I'm thinking, the way I'm feeling, uh, where even if the, the, um, the practicality of even where I'm living is a culmination of every moment of my life. It's brought me here. So there is some value in review. But... It, and only an individual knows this. Am I doing it in a way to solve a broken self? Because if that's, if that's the purpose, then it's a self-referential and, and a, a continued conditioning of our mind that there's something wrong with me. As opposed to recognizing that everything that I am is occurring, what is to be is what is here. And it's from this moment on if I can practice radical acceptance of who and what I am right here, right now, then I can move forward and build from that moment. If I'm constantly rehashing the past and using that self-reflection as a determining factor for the future, meaning if I'm judging those behaviors in a negative way, I'm determining my future by that, that negative judgment. I'm not in the present moment at all. So there's a value to review only in recognizing as a Dhamma practitioner, I also should put that qualification there. As a Dhamma practitioner, what is skillful and what is unskillful as far as my past behavior? Is it in line with right speech, right action, and right livelihood? And if it's not, what do I do? If, if in reflection I find out that, you know, yesterday I got scared at work and I lied to three people. In this moment, today, right here, right now, I recognize that that is unskillful. And I don't get into an internal mechanism as to why I did it and who did this to me and where does, where does lying come from and where am I going to go. Recognize it as unskillful in this moment and abandon that behavior. Mm-hmm. We, and then we, we, um, we avoid the endless um, labeling of where things come from and where am mm-hmm. I to blame instead of recognizing this is unskillful and we simply let it go. So, like, review and accept. Uh, yes. If, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Thank you. If your review mm. leads to radical acceptance, then it's a skillful practice. If it doesn't yeah. lead to that, if it leads to more agitation, mm-hmm. if, you're continually, if you find yourself continually fixing a broken cell, you have to recognize that it's the belief in the broken self that keeps you going. There's nothing broken. Yeah. How could there be? I mean, yeah. literally, how could, how could any human... Uh, let me qualify this. True psychopathology is very, very rare. It, it's probably less than 0.001% of the population. But many people, many more people than that, act pathological. But it's because we don't understand the nature of our pathology. 
those that aren't of that very minor percentage, you know, one thousandth of one percent, have the ability to change their minds. And that's all that this is. So we've been taught, and you, we've been taught there's great value in looking at all the things we've done wrong, and that will somehow make us better people. And there's, there, and there's some value in that. If I understand that I keep missing a nail, I'm going to bang my finger. Okay, I've got to move the hammer a little bit. That's skillful learning. But to blame myself for always hitting my finger is not skillful learning. So oftentimes the things that we're judging ourselves harshly are just re- repetitive behaviors. And it's better to look at right speech, right action, right livelihood, rather than the actual incident itself. Mm. So does this so help? Like a, a, a quote in my... <clears throat> there's a quote that I put into my workshop because I was aware of this as I was writing it around view and reflection is that, and actually um, put in a, a quote into one of the slides around let stuckness be feedback, not failure. Wait, say, say so, that again, please. I'm sorry. Like, let stuckness be feedback, not failure. So if the review process is about feedback, it's not to hook into failure or like you say what's broken or what could have been done differently do you mean or... i'm sorry to interrupt you mean feedback from the group no 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 um stuckness any kind of any areas of stuckness oh, is I... feedback in life yeah not failure it... um so like the review process is, is, is feedback basically oh you know? to, to find where you're stuck no, 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 just feedback, like internal feedback, you know, in terms of like you were using your examples of um, when yeah. you review. Yeah, so recognize that all behaviors fall, fall into that the, the categories of right speech, action, or livelihood, and they're clearly defined. And so if you look at your behavior and it's outside of those, that framework, it's simply... And it's simply a wrong aspect or a less than skillful aspect of it. It's to be recognized, recognized for the sole purpose so that when it comes up again within us, we don't do it. We practice wise restraint, and it is just that way. So there's tremendous value in review, but it's what do we do with the review? Do we use it for, for continual and continuous self-analysis? Or we simply recognize it as a past impermanent condition and move into the present? So, again, the review is, is skillful for recognizing patterns of behavior mm-hmm. so that we can, again, recognize those patterns and abandon them, which is really pure Dhamma practice. I, when I, and this is true of most um, addicts that live their life this way. Um, when I recovered, or began my recovery, I was 26 years old, and I remember talking to the guy that was helping me out in AA parlance, he's called a sponsor, and I was literally crying at his feet, saying, I don't, I, I've, been, I've been lying for so much and so long, I do not know how to tell the truth. And, I, and I, was, I, would, I did not know how to tell everything that came out of my mouth. If you asked me what I had for lunch today and I had a hamburger, I'd probably tell you a roast beef sandwich, just because roast beef is better than a hamburger. It means I could afford a roast beef rather than a hamburger. I mean, that's how I was. And I was at a point in my life, now sober a few months, but I couldn't figure out how to start telling the truth. And Bob, his name was Bob Hahn, looked me in the eyes, and he was this big, imposing guy. Still, he scared the hell out of me, which is what I needed back then. He said, if you want to tell the truth, tell the, you know, I won't use the word, tell the truth. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. That's the answer. If I want to be an honest person, I have to be honest. 
The Buddha's Dhamma is the same way. If I want to stop messing around with my past, if I want to free myself of the past, I have to let it go. And I also have to stop placing value on the experience. Because there is no value on the experience I had yesterday, and I cannot place any value on an experience I might have tomorrow, save to recognize it was skillful or unskillful. That's all. So... Uh, again, you have to you have to go through the review process, but what are you going to do with it? And now let me qualify this a little bit more. You also have to um, you have to meet people where they are. And so, in in the group that you're teaching, that might be a little bit uh, I don't want to say too advanced, uh, too far out of context for the group that you're teaching. But that doesn't mean that it's not valuable. And again, I'll give you an example of that because I think you're probably thinking of that. When I take people, I still work with a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts, and I take them through something called the 12 steps. Um, And I also teach them meditation as part of the 12 steps. But I never, ever teach them beyond meditation, meaning if you learn meditation, you have to learn it this way and in this context and and become, uh, you have to become a follower of me because that's not true. And people recover from drugs and alcohol without becoming a Buddhist as I define a Buddhist. So what I'm saying is your practice can be um, different than what you're teaching if, who, if what you're teaching is still of value to your audience. Is that making yeah. sense? Yeah, it does. Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. You said you had two questions? That's it. Those were the two. They were intertwined. Okay, yeah. And it's such an important question. Is it You mentioned that uh, the, the, the friend that you met, he doesn't ask any questions and maybe... It, we can't really know what that motivation might be. Maybe he realizes that, that there's no value in questions and maybe it's just avoidance. But, you know, it, it, that's when we got to be careful about getting into other people's heads. You know, yeah, and then it makes it difficult, I guess, for yeah. me who does value that. That's a big value for me. So to not be able to have that communication is important. And it's not to fix things. It's... Yeah, to identify where there was no skill, <laughs> yeah, you can, the, um, essentially. The, yeah, the question there would be, I mean, I would ask that question, and I do. If, if I feel like somebody doesn't have the ability to be forthcoming, I might ask, um, is, in, that, in the context that you're saying, did any of that bring any unhappiness or discontent with you? Or what did mm. bring discontent? Because that, that's pointing them in the direction. Everybody has discontent. And that mm-hmm. might draw someone like that out. And then if someone says, well, I don't have any discontent at all. And I, even if I know they're, you know, if they're obviously they're always upset, yeah. I leave it because they're not just not ready to talk about it. And if I insist yeah, that somebody I mean, talk his, to me. His reply was like, I'll have a think of some questions to ask. And I just thought, no. <laughs> yeah, that's the right. Yeah, that's right. Stop like there. That. Don't have yeah. the questions. Yeah. Don't ask them. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I, it so, sounds like you're doing a great job for those people. What What is the workshop called? Um, it's called Lessons Learned, and um, yeah, it's like it's um, the idea of um, personal life and professional life accounts, and you know, so over the year, where have there been credits and debits in terms of your energy? So, what's lifted you up? What's What's drained you? I love that it. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, I, I would bet that your presentation is going to change as you deepen your understanding of the Dhamma because it it's very close. Yeah. I mean, I think I think you'll find the Dhamma uh, inspiring to the to your workshops. Mm, At least I hope you. you do. Thank you, thank, thank you for you joining. Very much. My pleasure, Jeff. How are you? 
Frank. Sorry, I got interrupted with a phone call, so I'm just tuning back in. So I'll I'll finish out by just listening. Okay, I'm glad he didn't hear what we were talking about then. <laughs> I'm glad you're back. Tom, how are you? I'm good, thanks, uh, John. Yeah, um, yeah, thanks for the teaching. Um, just a couple of things. I think this this idea of ignoble searching, it, 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 you know, I read the passage, I think, yesterday morning, and it really, it did hit home with me as well, because um, first and foremost, it... it made me feel so grateful for having a the opportunity this awareness to have a more noble search yeah. um you know even if i'm not there yet and you know i'm not obviously as experienced in my practice as i as i hopefully will be in the future um it just it just i, I just think uh, i think all of us on this call and you know, everybody who's part of the Sangha, um, we are just immensely lucky to have access to these teachings. I agree. Um, and, and I, one of the biggest and most profound impacts this has had on me personally is I don't really envy anyone anymore. Yeah. Um, doesn't mean to say that I don't, uh, uh, you know, people may have more this or more that, or, you know, uh, they, they have things in their life, which perhaps, you know, obviously I'd like to have a bit more money or I'd like to have a bigger house or whatever, all of those things. I, I, I wouldn't mind having those things. I'm not against them, but I just feel that what I've gained through this opportunity to have a really noble search in life is, is worth way more than, all of that so so that's the first thing and it's had a really profound impact on me on a on a on a sort of um in terms of my happiness and my my sense of contentment because i just i just know what i need to do uh and i just need to be focused on that um and it brings me so much so much peace and um well-being relative to um what i had before um, so that's the first thing, really, just to share. Um, and so, obviously, thank you to you, John, because um, if I hadn't have stumbled across your teachings eighteen months ago, I, I wouldn't have this in my life. So it's it's been so transformative, and that, that's been amazing. Um, and I, just just to end with a, you know a question, I guess a simple question, but um, why do you think if if as we were saying, it is the most important thing you could possibly do in life is to have a noble search. Um, we've we've gone through the last, well, thousands of years of existence and invented all kinds of amazing things and developed, you know, economically in terms of um, technology, et cetera, et cetera, so much. Society has evolved in many ways, right? Mm -hmm. It's a lot more tolerant than it used to be. Um, it's not as tolerant as it should be yet, but it's better than it was, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Why, why do you think it is? Why is it that this, 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 there is so much ignoble searching in the world? Um, how is it possible that there are so, 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 so few people on this planet of billions of people who actually know what a noble search is. I just, I, I know it's a difficult question for you to ask, but I just sometimes, no. I just, I, I can't fathom it because 
it's not rocket science and yet it's we just live in this unbelievably diluted world and i just i just don't know how to understand that you know how can we have so much development and technology and yet basically we've just lost entirely the meaning of living a human life um so and how rare it is i just i just find that amazing but sorry over, it's, over to it's you, a John. great the, the the we just did the loka sutta last uh this past tuesday in that sutta which the buddha gave right after he awakened he said i looked out on the world and the world was a flame a flame with what a flame with the fires of passion the world was exactly the same during the Buddha's time as it was now, save for technological advances. Uh, so we're dealing with the same thing. And there was, even though the Buddha had a, a, a you know, there were, within a couple of months he had a thousand followers, that was still a real small percentage of the people that lived in the world at that time. Uh, so one, one quick answer to what you're asking, why? I learned a long time ago from a, a, a really important teacher of mine, who's a, a Franciscan, uh, I'm sorry, a Jesuit. And he said, never ask why. He says, if you want to lose your mind, keep asking why. And, and, and I, I won't get into the whole story as to why that made sense coming from him. But really, when I'm, when I'm asking why, most of the time, I'm, what I'm saying is, this is wrong. And why is it occurring in the world? So the, the Buddha's response wouldn't be why are all these people deluded. It's just all these people are deluded because that's what's occurring. And then that gives you the present moment foundation on where to go with that. First, first the Buddha, first we save ourselves because then we may be able to contribute to all these other people. But it's a reasonable question too that needs, I think it deserves more of an answer. Um, why aren't more people doing this? And why have we made such great str strides in other ways? But in this one way, it's it's such a powerful teaching on conditioned thinking. In this way, there is there truly is a collective, and the human species are collectively rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, or they simply wouldn't act this way. Will that change? I don't know. Uh, Siddhartha Gautama never predicted anything like that. You know, one day we'd all be on the path. I don't. I, I, even as a goal, I realize now how ridiculous that would be to even think that. It's not my role to change anybody's thinking. It's not, it, it's not Louise's role to change her friend's thinking. But to be meaningfully present and be an example and maybe a little guidepost for, for useful change. But the most important thing is what the, you know, the, the oath the doctors take. First, we have to do no harm. And that begins with ourselves. If we really, if the most loving thing we can do for ourselves and all other sentient beings is take to the Dhamma and awaken so that we do no harm. First with ourselves and then to everyone around us. And so just think about that. I see you, Jeff. Think about just that one thing. Instead of everybody having to save everyone else, if everybody would just stop doing harm to themselves, that one thing, the whole world is liberated, isn't it? That one thing. But we can't do it because we don't understand. We don't understand it. We're doing it to ourselves. What we're doing to other people, and you can also say this is true collectively, we're doing to ourselves. I was angry with myself all the time. And it expressed itself as anger towards others all the time. Even if I was pleasant with you, I was probably angry at you. And it wasn't until I stopped being angry at myself or being such a you know, useless piece of crap that did all these terrible things I stopped being angry at myself. And guess what? I'm no longer yelling and screaming at people anymore either because I stopped it against myself. Do no harm. Jeff, you had a, a, a question or a comment. 
Well, I, I guess it's a comment. I, I, I thought a lot about that too, Thomas. And it, you know, there's, there's roughly 200, 215,000 people born every day. And each of us come in the world more or less completely ignorant. Yep. So that there's, there's an endless ongoing supply of, of us nitwits. It, it, it's not like we're going to get caught up with that somehow, right? It's yeah. just it's just part of it. It's just all part of whatever the process is that we go through, and you, you live with it. Yeah, and, and just be grateful. That's right. Yeah. And, so yeah, I'm you're grateful you you're no longer one of the completely ignorant. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. I mean, that's exactly how I feel, Jeff. Yeah. I, mean, I don't. I don't consider myself special in any way. Certainly, I don't have any special way of thinking. But somehow, I was able to come across this dhamma. It's still there. You got to look for it. You got to know the right context, and it worked. That's the best thing that ever happened to me. It's a, you know, and I think it's the best thing that would ever happen to you. It doesn't mean that there's other you know, wonderful things that happen in life. But if I don't understand what the hell's going on, what good is it? But now I do. Or at least, I can say this way, at least I understand it enough to make sense in my life, to be present with my moment-by-moment life. And I've had the experience of completely ordinary, mundane moments being wonderful because I'm present for it. I don't need to look outside of myself anymore for meaning, for purpose, for excitement, for distraction. This moment is enough, and it really is. By the way, I spend a lot of time teaching the Dhamma, so maybe that has something to do with it. Um, and you said one other thing, Tom, I want to comment on. You talked about uh, ending um, bitterness or envy towards others. That's true liberation. When I'm no longer, in fact, it's one of the factors of the, um, uh, the character defects that we look at in the 12 steps is envy or bitterness. Because that will always drive us back to drugs or drinking, but it will drive us who aren't prone to that, that bitterness towards others to other hurtful behavior, even if it's just to wallow in the bitterness. Why has everybody got so much more than me? Or, you know, why, you know, why do people have big houses and I got this little tent? All of that takes you out of the moment. Instead of what you just said, I'm just so fortunate to understand. And that, does, that has no reflection on anything that's going on outside you, does it? You could be living under a bridge. If you recognize how fortunate you are to understand what it means to be a human being living under a bridge, then you're okay. It doesn't mean you're going to live under the bridge forever either, does it? But it means you'll be, you'll be at peace with that moment in your life, which is true liberation. So again, thank you, Tom. Alex, what do you think of all this? Yeah, I'm itching to get in, to be honest. This is, uh, this is very engaging. Um, I uh, was thinking back to last time we met, I think it was two weeks ago, and you were talking about your father's funeral and I asked you about um, whether other people drag you you feel ever feel like other people drag you out of your uh, right view I guess yep. um, and I'd say you know based on what Tom's been saying for me what gives me peace is to just accept that they like in my experience I feel like that a lot like people Sometimes I feel like other people don't see things the way I do, and then I catch myself and I think, well, I can't change that. I can just ex- the best thing I can do is accept that for what it is and keep doing what I do. Yeah, and that's, that's right. all I can do. Yeah, um, 
if I wish them to be any different, then I lose my mind. <laughs> yeah, and you lose them too. Yeah. yeah. So it's a really strange one, but I've definitely got a lot of peace of mind from that because I don't worry about I worry about other people. You know, I have sympathy for them in the way the yep. in the way this this sutta talks about sympathy, which is interesting. But um, uh, I just stick to what I what I do and what I see. And if other people see something in that, then they'll they'll be curious someday and, and come along and, and want right. to know more. But yeah. Unless they, you know, that's on them really. Um, yeah, no, it's a really interesting conversation from everybody today. I, I don't have too much else to add. The sutra itself, um, really interesting. I, I've, Ig Noble and Noble Search is a new concept to me. I hadn't heard that before. Um, I'm trying to di- distinguish... So am I right in thinking that skillful actions and unskillful actions are like actions I'm doing and then the noble search and the ignoble search is a similar concept, but it's more about what I'm seeking. Yes. Is that right? That's right. That's absolutely right. Yeah. yeah. This is a new concept, but um, I like it. And uh, yeah, no, the whole, the sutta itself was, if I'm honest, I felt I found it repetitive like I often do. Yeah, gotta be. <laughs> um, but I was really trying to get something from each repetition, and I think it's just kind of keep letting it hammer home until yeah. you see what the Buddha was teaching. Um, so yeah, I enjoyed it, and I don't really have too much else to add or to ask. Well, that was so, that was a lot to, to add. Thank you, Alex. I think what you're describing is kind of unraveling the knots in your own mind about what this is. And again, you're getting to very subtle levels of the Dhamma. You're practicing the Dhamma as intended. Um, and you mentioned sympathy. Um, uh, simpatico is another word that means sympathy. And when we apply it one-on-one, I'm simpatico with you, it means that I'm, I'm, I really understand your space. And of course, true sympathy is understanding the nature of stress and suffering of others because I understand it myself. It's enough, you know, I, I can... We can notice externally when people are stressed out, they're screaming around or, you know, that okay, that person is stressed out. But that's not an understanding of it. We don't understand why that person is acting that way. We understand it because we understand that our stress came from a lack of understanding of Four Noble Truths. And those Four Noble Truths are simple truths. They're nothing, um, it's not conceptually impossible to understand it. In fact, it's just describing what it means to be a human being. Uh, and we get to do that. It's the great liberation. You know, it, again, going back to something that Tom said, being bitter about other human beings, that's not liberating, is it? And it's no way to live your life. Yet a lot of people, I mean, their whole life is characterized by bitterness. Those are, I mean, that, those are the saddest lives that I come across. Um, but everybody has those aspects of it. And there can be no liberation when I think you got it better than I do. You know, and, uh, and, but we're taught that. And even the, I don't want to get too deep into it. Um, we're going to have at least one more class on this suit, and maybe two. There is a lot here. Uh, but I would ask you to go back uh, and read it again, at least before next week's class. You might want to start listening to the Karma and Rebirth talks if you have time, uh, and then review what's coming up next week. But we'll we'll keep this going. So, uh, John, can I, just, can I just ask something, just like, Tapping into what everyone has said and Please. something else you've just said. Um, of course. Do you entertain close, intimate relationships with people that you consider to be ignorant or not on this path? 
No, never, 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 no. I'm just kidding. Uh, if, if I did that, I probably wouldn't have any relationships. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I mean. And you create I, intimacy with someone who isn't on. Yeah, I'll give you a good example because. Of understanding of yep. understanding what's skillful and what's not. I, yeah, I have a few like that. One significant relationship was with a woman that I lived with in, in this particular house for six years who was a, a Buddhist. But all her friends, uh, one of her uh, greatest influences was someone in Triratna. Uh, she's one of the teachers for Triratna. And then she has some other friends that are uh, very fond of uh, Thich Nhat Hanh and what he teaches. And, and she also took to what I was teaching. But she couldn't let go of those other teachings and, and because, you know, I, because of the way I teach. Um, we maintained a re- relationship that was friendly, intimate, physically intimate for many years. But eventually it got to the point where the discrepancies in our beliefs became too much. But we're still intimate friends. We, you know, uh, she has, uh, what's, the, she ta- what's the word when you, when you share a, a child? Co-parent. What is it? Co-parent. Yeah, she's she's co-parent to Bodie, to my dog. So you know, every now and then she'll come over. We'll take the dog for a walk, and we we, we really enjoy each other's company. We you know we still we, we can still talk for hours, but we have that most fundamental difference that doesn't allow us to live in the same house together. But so, and I'm not saying we could. I think I don't have any trouble with it. It's, it's really Mora that um, mm. finds me so. Aggravated. I mean, I'm not talking in terms of belief. I'm talking about in terms of behavior, like skillful behavior towards others, like oh, understanding yeah, yep. and awareness of self. Like yep. So that out, kind of thing. In, the, in the world, um, it, I mean, I notice it all the time, I guess, that where people are acting out of ignorance. But I, but mm. there's no judgment when I see that. In other words, I don't see that. Look at this idiot. Why are you acting that way? In fact, I understand it. So there's immediate compassion. Um, so I would say I have intimate relationships, non-physical with a lot of people that are not practicing the path. Um, it's, it's, it's certainly not a requirement to live in the world. I live better in the world and more at peace now than I ever did. And it's because I can let people be who they are. Um, and it's also not as, there's no feeling of superiority when I recognize someone is really stuck in ignorance, which honestly is most of the time. I don't see myself as above these people in any way. I, I'm just a human being who was fortunate enough to figure things out. So it, it doesn't create any, any kind of uh, division between me and any other human being. And I, and I don't think it will in you, Louise. You, you, you are... Um, I, I'm, I'm pretty accepting and I don't, I, I, don't look, I don't look down on anyone. I just... Yeah. Um, I kind of use the metaphor of like, you know, a negligent driver on the road, like it's not a very good driver, not yeah. careful, not skillful, can cause danger to others. <laughs> and there's some people That's that right. I've like allowed into my life in quite an intimate way who have been negligent drivers. And I just think, uh-huh. you know, can I become a victim in that? Oh, um, yeah. Like you that. know, and, and really... That's why I'm asking the question. Do you allow people that you know are negligent drivers? Do you get in the passenger seat with those drivers? Well, again, Um, thank you for clarifying it. No, I don't get in the passenger seat. In fact, it's it's part of wise Dhamma practice to not associate with people that are hurtful or unskillful in that way. 
It just right. is. Yeah. And we, we have, it takes a little wise discernment to do that. Um, yeah. I mean, I, there's been two people, and I've taught maybe 1,200 classes, so you know, quite a few people. There's been two people who have come to class that because of the way that they carry themselves, I ask them not to come back. You know, and, right. and I've done that in other areas of my life that I just don't mm-hmm. spend time with people that are hurtful in some way. I just don't. And that, to me, that's, that's skillful. That's really good to know. Thank you. So yeah, there's many, many sutras where the Buddha teaches. I'm sorry, I talked over you. No, it's, it's just really helpful because, you know, this concept of radical acceptance, like where is there a hard limit on that, you know? Oh. Um, so I'm pleased to hear that you're saying, you know, there is and you can say, yes. I'm not yeah. getting in the car with this person. I'm not getting into the passenger seat. Yes, we learn the difference through the Dhamma of the difference between acceptance and approval. A conditioned mind has acceptance and approval clung together. In other words, in order for me to accept this person, I have to first approve of them or whatever the situation is. Radical acceptance is acceptance without approval or disapproval. It just is. It's what's occurring. So this person is, a, there's a poem, I don't know if you ever, the Desiderata, I was thinking of a line, a vexation to the spirit. This person is a vexation to my spirit. Okay, it, I, I don't need to be around them. There's many, many sutras where the Buddha teaches the importance of wise association. And it's not that we should be against certain people. It does mean we should recognize those people that are actually contributing to my own welfare. And that's just, that's just wise discernment. You know, and, and I, I think uh, Jeff, I believe, is retired, but the rest of us are still involved. And, and we're involved in slightly different ways in helping people. I know Jeff has helped it people throughout his whole life. I just know him for the man he is. So we are naturally inclined to be helpful towards people and we will continue that way. You will continue that way, Louise. But what I found and I think what you will find is you'll become much more effective at helping people that can truly be helped. And the Buddha recognized that too. And that's when he said, my Dhamma is for those with just a speck of dust in their eyes. Meaning he didn't have time to teach the whole world, but he did have time to teach those that, that could actually learn something. And that, again, that, that's profound wisdom in that, isn't there? And a, a self-effacing way of looking is, at it. Is what? Part, pardon me? What did you just say? My dharma is for those... With just a speck of dust in their eyes. Just Meaning they were, they're, they, they, they're ready to develop the dharma, they're willing to do it. Those are the ones that I want to teach. He didn't see himself as a savior. He didn't see like he had to go out and save the whole world or be recognized as a savior. Mm-hmm. He just wanted to help those people that... that we're in front of him. And that's what he did for 45 years. And I think you're all going to do the same. You're, you're, that's what you're talking about. You know, so it's not about excluding anybody, but it's about wise associations and doing what is most skillful within the framework of the Eightfold Path. And in that way, you're going to have a, a real impact on people. Tom just said it. You know, I, I, I really appreciate what Tom said because it's important for me, not in an ego way, to know that what I'm teaching is actually working, that it's that I can teach in a way that other other people can learn. And that's so important because that's that's why I do this. You know, it's what it's it's why I'm interested in this because it actually does something for people. I've been, you know, I had different I won't get into too much in the story, but I had different ways of teaching people. I used to lead these kind of silly psycho spiritual tours of Hawaii. Um, laughing at it because of, you know, I was sincere at the time, but the thing I what I was teaching people was really crazy, but you know, there it is. Uh, those that associated with me weren't really getting a getting of, of much benefit, except we did have a good time. Um, we all we did, but it, it, it didn't help any of us uh, except to have that good time. 
it's not all about good times. It's about learning and understanding and, and what it means to be a human being. And I, I think we've done a good job of that so far today. Uh, all right. Uh, any other questions or comments? Let me just plug this in so I don't lose it. Uh, and just, to say, just to say thank you and also thank you to everyone here for allowing me so much time and questions. That's what we're for. Um, this is, this so is a I lo- really appreciate it. I've learned a lot tonight. Um, yeah, thanks. Thank you, Louise. This is the point of a well-focused and well-informed sangha. You know, this is why we do what we do. And these discussions that we have, I've had people say that they couldn't stand the discussion afterwards. They like the teaching. But that's only half a class, isn't it? More is learned in our discussions after the teaching than, than does, is directly through the teaching, because this is how we're applying it. So thank you for saying that and for participating. Um, Alex, could you stay on for just two minutes after? And if you're too busy, tell me. Sure. Uh, yeah, it's two minutes. It's fine. Okay. All right. We'll finish with meta as we always do. So again, take a moment to become mindful of your in-breath and your out-breath and let that mindfulness unite your mind and your body. In the Buddha's words on meta from the Karaniya Metta Sutta, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Peace. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.